Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. I keep hearing people say, uh, we just got to have faith. We just got to have faith. We just got to have faith. And I'm like, what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith? Does that mean that we uh, check our brains at the door? Does that mean we hold on stubbornly to our opinion, even when it's clear it's not right? Does that mean that we're super optimistic in the face of a lot of things that are pessimistic? What does it mean to have faith? One of my favorite faith stories is about a man named Eric Wine Mayer. You may have heard his name, you may not have. He's one of my favorite athletes. Uh, Eric uh, is an extreme athlete. Eric, over the course of his career, has climbed all of the highest peaks in seven continents, including Mount Everest. He's, he's climbed uh, the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite, 3,000-foot climb. He's climbed a 3,000-foot frozen waterfall in Nepal. He's gone on this immensely challenging long bike ride. He's conquered Primal Quest, which is an adventure race of almost 500 miles. I could go on and on and on. Uh, the latest thing Eric did was he whitewater rafted the entire Grand Canyon, which is one of the most demanding whitewater rafting stretches in the entire world. All of that is uber impressive. It's even more impressive when we realize that Eric is blind. Eric had a was born with a hereditary disease of the eye. He knew at some point the lights would go out for him, and they did around age 13. And yet Eric didn't see it as a, as a weakness. He saw it as an opportunity to overcome. And he became a, a champion wrestler. And then he went on to pick up climbing and was really good at it. And someone one day said, why don't you climb Mount Everest? He's like, okay. Climbing Mount Everest is so incredibly difficult. It takes years and years of training, a ton of money, many, many months to get over there and acclimate and do it well. 90% of the people who attempt to summit Mount Everest fail. And yet Eric was not one of them. Uh, over 200 people have died attempting to climb Mount Everest. So Eric, uh, he set up an entire uh, training system uh, that, that helped him uh, overcome uh, his blindness as he climbed up. And yet still, even for a person with sight, it's a daunting exercise. Uh, there, there are points when you're climbing Mount Everest that you uh, go over a crevasse that drops 2,000 feet uh, down if you misstep. Uh, people who are blind, I, I'm told, rely on navigating life through patterns. They, they know how rooms are laid out or they kind of memorize things so they don't bump into things. Mount Everest is patternless. It's always shifting and changing the landscape because of the weather. I don't know about you, but I, I can barely make it to the, the bathroom at night when it's dark. <laughs> Eric's climbing Mount Everest when he is, is blind. It's incredible. The last little stretch of Mount Everest before your summit, if you get that opportunity to do so, it's 656 uh, foot uh, climb to, to the summit, and it's called Hillary Step. And um, there's just a really, really narrow area that you can walk all the way up to the summit. And on one side is a 7,000 foot drop. And on the other side is a 10,000 foot drop. And at times there's 100 
mile an hour winds. And Eric was blind. I know I have to keep repeating this. It's incredible. When Eric uh, summited Mount Everest is the, is the first uh, blind person to do so, he made the cover of Time magazine. And the, the title was Blind Faith. Blind Faith. What is faith? When we say we got to have faith, what do we mean is, is, is faith blind? We're going to dive into these, these questions today. We're, uh, we're nearing the end of a, of a series we've been in throughout the summer called What Does That Mean? And the goal of the series is to take really significant Bible words, uh, Hebrew words or, or Greek words, and we're contending that m- most of us get those words wrong to some degree. And they're so important, we want to get them right. So we spend time looking at how does Scripture define these words, and then how do we misunderstand, and then how do we, how do we live them out? So each week we look at a different word. Uh, last week was, was hesed. Uh, this week is a Greek word. It's the word pistis. We write that up there, and the word pistis, I bet you can guess what it means. It's almost always defined and translated in the Bible as faith, pistis, faith. Uh, I'm going to pray for us uh, to kind of gather our hearts and minds as we get ready to dive into this word and see what the scriptures say, how we misunderstand it, how do we live it out. And I just want to acknowledge that there's continues to be just a lot of really hard, difficult stuff going on around the world. I could sit here for the next hour and, and walk through them, but uh, most noteworthy what's going on in, in Haiti with the earthquake uh, and then the, the storm that followed, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, and there's just a lot of things that are just burdening our hearts, continuing to, to, to wrestle with COVID and, and the Delta variant. So I hope it challenges us as followers of Jesus to pray and to go before God. And if you want to do something uh, tangible and specific to help in those two areas I mentioned, just go back to our Facebook page. Uh, this past week, we, we uh, offered some opportunities, some recommendations on how you can help in those areas. So I want to encourage you to check that out. But we certainly want to pray. And a lot of times I don't even have the words to pray. And so I turn to prayer books. I turn to people that are more mature and godlier than I am. Uh, to help me pray. So some of my favorite prayer books are two volumes called Every Moment Holy, volume one and two by Douglas McKelvey. Highly recommended. They're amazing. Volume two came out this last year, and it's all about praying through grief and suffering and doubt. So let me just read this prayer over us to kind of gather our hearts, to keep these things going on in your life. You can maybe front and center those as we're praying uh, this prayer, and uh, then we'll we'll dive in uh, to our text today. So give us strength, O God, to feel this grief deeply, never to hide my heart from it. And give us also hope enough to remain open to surprising encounters with joy, as one on a woodland path might stumble suddenly into dapplings of golden light. Amidst the pain that lades these days, give us courage, O Lord, courage to live them fully, to love, to allow ourselves to be loved, to remember, to grieve, and honor what was, to live with thanksgiving in what is, and to invest in the hope of what will be. For this is who we are. We're a people of the promise, a people shaped in the image of God whose very being generates all joy in the universe, yet who also weeps and grieves its brokenness. So as we, your children, are also at liberty to lament our losses, even as we simultaneously rejoice in the hope of their coming restoration. And all God's people said, amen. So uh, last week we talked about how words have a range of meaning, 
And um, this is true in English, this is true in Hebrew, this is true in the Greek. We use the example of the word throw in English, that uh, we can uh, throw a, a ball, uh, we can um, throw a pot, a potter does that, we can throw out our back. So what matters is context, that's how we, we, we know what range of meanings for a word uh, the writer or the author intended. And this is certainly true for our word last week, hesed, it's definitely true for our word this week, pistis, which like hesed, is multifaceted, multidimensional. It has a lot going on. And so we're, we're gonna talk about that just for a little bit. We're gonna see how the, the Bible treats this word, and then we'll get into how we, we, we misunderstand it. Dr. Nijay Gupta is a friend of mine. He's spoken at New Hope, and uh, he's written a book expressly on this topic called Paul in the Language of Faith. Uh, if you wanna dive deeper into how the Bible uses this word faith, particularly in the writings of Paul, Highly recommended book, Nijay does a good job. So I'm just gonna co-op his three categories. Uh, this is generally uh, how Paul, and I think generally the writers of scripture in the New Testament use this word faith, just to give you an illustration of how it's used differently. I just want you to know and acknowledge that when you come to it and you see this word pistis, faith, that it can mean different things. And, and that's important as we dive into what it means. So the first category is, uh, Nijay would say, believing faith. And this is probably the, the way most of us think about faith. When I said, how would you define faith? Or what does it mean to have faith? This is probably what comes in your mind. And, and it's the idea of what we believe. And uh, believing faith, when it's used this way by the writer of scripture, is all up in our head. It's beliefs that, that we have. Uh, an example would be, uh, you know, Chelsea read the passage earlier from uh, Hebrews. An example would be uh, this from Hebrews. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So that's verse one of chapter 11. That's kind of the writer's definition of faith. Uh, so basically faith is what we believe in our minds and are hoping is true. Uh, Nietzsche would make the point that it's not as much our beliefs like our list of facts, but it's, it's, it's how we see the world. It's believing in such a way to see the world differently through, through new eyes. Paul uses it this way when he says that we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. The world kind of uses it, it, its sight, but we, we see a new way. We, we know enough in our beliefs about God, about Jesus, that we see things in, in a new way. Uh, my, my daughter Eden, a, a few years ago, was getting ready for school one morning, and she was remarking about something I can't remember. And she said, um, she said I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I have to believe it to see it. And then she started started laughing because what she meant to say was the opposite. She's like, no, no, no. I mean, I have to see it to believe it. But as I was reflecting on that, like her first statement is 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 true as well. And I think that's the idea here that that we have to believe it to see in a new way. So believing faith, that's one way uh, the writers use it. The second is obeying faith, and this is faith that moves from our our heads, what we believe, what we think our beliefs into our bodies and animates our bodies and, and causes uh, action. It's not the same thing um, as just obedience. Obedience is doing something because we're told to do it. Obeying faith is doing something because we're told to do it and we believe it to be true. So that's a distinct uh, difference. Oftentimes, uh, this, when, it, when it's used this way, you see translators translate the word pistis as, as allegiance or faithfulness. And this happens a lot. This is a common way this word is used in the New Testament. Here's a couple, um, a couple of examples. Um, the Lord's message rang out uh, from you, not only in Macedonia, uh, but, but, uh, but uh, Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So if you go back, it's, you could put in uh, your, your faith or your, your, your faithfulness uh, or your allegiance or your loyalty. Um, 
that's one instance. And then another one in Romans 1.5, this is really clear. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake, or the obedience of faith, some translators say, the obedience of faith. So this is obeying faith. There's a third instance uh, that this word is used, and Nietzsche would argue that uh, the word is used really on a spectrum, this range. And so at one end, if you kind of think about the cognitive up in our heads, our beliefs, the way we see the world differently, the other end, how it drives us to, to different kind of action, uh, the obeying faith. He says sometimes the writer of scripture uses it in a comprehensive sense that it means both. It means all of it, the whole spectrum. And Nietzsche would put this category in trusting faith. There's usually a very relational component in it. We're trusting God with how we see the world, what we believe, and also how we live. So it's comprehensive. And we see this a lot in the New Testament as, as, as well. Here's a couple examples. Uh, this is Paul quoting the, uh, a prophet from the Old Testament. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So you see how this involves, this use of pistis involves both the mind and the body. So there's those three categories. Just maybe that's nerdy. Maybe you just got fell asleep and got really bored. I think it's important to understand, again, the writers of scripture, there's a range. And so you can't just see that word and see faith and assume it means one thing. It can mean different things. So we have to look at the, the context. So let's get into how we, we get the word wrong. This is where I want to spend most of our time uh, today. I, th I think we grossly misunderstand this word. Probably, I would argue, more than any word that we've looked at in the series uh, thus far. I, uh, I, I heard a kind of a, a story, a joke a while ago that illustrated, I think, somehow we get faith wrong. We say, I just got to have faith. And the story's about something like a man on a, it was in a flood and the, the waters are rising and he's in his house and they're trying to evacuate and the person drives by on a Jeep and says, hey, you, know, you got to get out of here. It's dangerous. You need a ride. No, no, I'm good. And the waters rise even more, and somebody comes by on a boat. It's like, hey, man, you got to get out of here. You know, everything's going under. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'll go on. And then finally, the water's all the way up, and he's, he's sitting on his roof. He's, he's barely making it, and a helicopter comes. And, you know, he's like, you're the last one here. You know, we got to get you out. He's like, no, I'm good. And then that man ends up sadly drowning to death. So he enters heaven, and uh, he says, God, like, I had faith that you were going to save me. God's like, bro, like, I don't know if God talks like that, but like, I sent a Jeep and a boat and a helicopter. And I think that that kind of reveals the underbelly of how we use this word faith sometimes. We, we say we're going to have faith, and yet, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to have faith? Let's get into how we misunderstand. I think we do it, we misunderstand in three ways. I try to be creative in how I, I, I term this so we remember. The first way we misunderstand it is what I call lobotomized faith. And this is uh, faith without reason. Faith without reason. Uh, a lobotomy is where you separate your brain from your body or part of your brain from your body. So a lobotomized faith is when we, when we think we got to check our brains at the door. And oh my goodness, let me just be honest here. I think I might lose my mind watching followers of Jesus over this last 18 months. If I hear one more follower of Jesus say, I just, I'm just having faith while they're doing something ridiculous and unreasonable, um, like it's an excuse to. This presupposes that their faith is divorced from reason, that, it, that faith should be unreasonable. 
And that is not what the Bible says at all. And this is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. Traditionally, you look back to the history of Christianity, and Christians were the, the best t- scientists, and they were the best philosophers. And uh, Christians started almost all of the noted universities in America and even in Europe. Um, so Christians have been long devoted to reason and knowledge. When people say, uh, I just have faith, I don't need reasons or knowledge, that's not faith, that's uh that's ignorance, to be honest. Uh, so faith is biblical faith, real faith, as I, w- I will say it, is not opposed to reason and knowledge. It's, it's built on reason and knowledge. Let's look at this. So I'll prove it to you if you don't agree. Let's, let's look at some scriptures. Let's dive in. So let's go back to Hebrews 11, uh, back to our, our definition from Hebrews 11. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This word substance in the Greek means that which stands under. We get our word substantial from it. So our faith is, is built on, on stuff that's substantial. It's built on stuff that, that, is, that is reasonable. As we continue reading right away in Hebrews 11, verse 3, and this whole chapter is devoted to what faith is, uh, we see this. By faith we, what's that word? understand, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith we understand, that word in the Greek means to apply mental uh, energy and effort to reach a conclusion. It, it, It doesn't mean we have to check our brain at the door. So, in the portion of, of Hebrews 11 that, that Chelsea read earlier, uh, we see one of the examples. There's many of, of what faith looks like, Father Abraham. He's a prime example, a lot of mileage given to Abraham in this chapter. Uh, the author recounted how Abraham responded to God's call by faith, moved his family, trusted God even when his old, in his old age to bring a promised one to, that his family would, would be immense and bless the world and bless all the nations. Let's continue reading in verse 17. Chelsea didn't read this far. This is what the, the author says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This is his promised son that finally came, who's, who's a grown man now. He, had, he, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he didn't, did receive Isaac back from the dead. This is a really strange and unsettling story. We don't have time to like hash it all out, and I'm, I hesitated to even use it because it's going to bring all kinds of questions. But anyway, it's a, it's a really pivotal story to, to Jewish people and to Christian people. And just know this, to put your mind at ease, if you go back to the context of Genesis 22, Abraham's got his servants, he's going with Isaac up the mountain to presumably sacrifice his son, because uh, that's what God's asked him to do. But I, Abraham believes and has faith that his son's not going to die. Whatever happens, his son's not going to die. Because he tells, small little detail in Genesis 22, he said, we will return after we worship the Lord. So what Abraham believed fervently is even if he had to do this, he didn't understand why he was doing it, that God would either provide a lamb or another sacrifice, which God ended up doing, or God would raise his son from the dead because he was the boy of the promise and God keeps his word. Abraham just believed this. So he knew they'd be back. So that's important in understanding the story. How did Abraham come to this point of faith? Was it just pie in the sky, optimism? I just think that that's it. No, you might've seen the word. I kind of emphasize a little bit in verse 19. It says, Abraham, what's that word? Reasoned. Abraham puzzled it out and did the mental math and looked at who God was and what God had promised and how he'd walked with his people and how God keeps his word. He reasoned. Faith is not opposed to reason and knowledge. It's built on reason and knowledge. 
Uh, go back to Eric's story, the, the blind faith. When we hear that term, that vernacular, we, we think that that term means uh, just believe in something even when there's no good reason to believe it. That's kind of what it's come to mean in our mind. That's why I think that headline maybe was, was cheeky and funny, but not apropos. Because if you read Eric's story, this man, he didn't just say, I'm going to climb Everest and just give it a go and go up there alone and wander around the mountain and make it to the top. Of course he didn't. He studied, he trained, he had special poles, he had climbers, experienced climbers with bells in front of him, people around him calling out to the right, drop to the right, to the left. He had people he was tied to and helping him. And like, of course he did. He was highly trained. He knew exactly what he was doing. He'd done it again and again and again and again. He had people around him helping him. It was reasonable. Yes, he was blind, but it was reasonable. Same thing in the other things that he did. He, he trained for six years with world-class kayakers to kayak the Grand Canyon. And even then, he had kayakers in front of him and behind him calling out signs and telling him which way to go. Of course, he was a world-class kayaker. To, to do that, you had to be, but he also had people around him to help compensate for the fact that he could not see. Incredibly impressive, even if you could see. Really impressive if you can't. But this is not blind faith. He didn't do it blindly, if you will. If you don't believe all of that, just believe Jesus, because he's the one we follow. And Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount to, um, when he's talking about worry, he said, consider the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. So it's a, it's a mental word. He's like, think about it. Think about it. Look at how they're doing. I'm going to take care of you. Jesus said at one point to his disciples to be shrewd. That's a mental word. Be shrewd. Be smart. Jesus, in one of his pivotal commands, said, we're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. We don't have to check our brains at the door. What's my hope for you and for me as, as followers of Jesus? My hope is that we would be disciples. And that word means apprentices. That word means learners. It means that we're eager to learn, that we know we don't have the full truth. All of us are wrong about a lot of things. That's just the truth. None of us have the corner on the truth. N.T. Wright, who I think is the most brilliant New Testament scholar in the last hundred years, I've heard him say something like this, that he, uh, he knows he's probably right about 85% of what he says. Uh, he just doesn't know which 15% he's wrong on. <laughs> like, I always laugh at that because he's brilliant. It's also humble. This man's a learner. He's in the, the latter part of his life. He's brilliant, but he's always learning. That's, that kind of posture is what I want to see in followers of Jesus. Uh, how do we do that? What's a way, if you see this in your life, that you've divorced faith from reason, uh, a simple step you can take is just to seek wisdom, just to like, like, like seek it, want it, want knowledge. That word in, in, the, in the Hebrew is hokmah, and it means to live skillfully. There's tons of wisdom literature in the Bible. It's not Christian literature per se. It's just literature on how to live skillfully, live wisely. Uh, when, I, when I make any decisions for myself or for the church, our staff knows this. It probably drives them nuts. But I always try to find multitudes of the smartest people, the experts on a certain thing, and talk to them and kind of say, what do you do? And I challenge you to live this way. Uh, find, find experts on a topic that you're trying to decide on. And can I just say, uh, they're not going to be found on cable news, probably. <laughs> they're definitely not going to be found on social media, on your social media feed. Uh, it's, it's just funny. Uh, this year, I never knew how many people had, uh, you know, PhDs in epidemiology. It's just fascinating that everybody's an expert on vaccines and virus. I'm being snarky, for sure. My point is, find people who are actual experts. And think of it like this. This is the way the writers of, of the wisdom literature think. Put the 20 smartest people in a room, the experts in a room on a certain subject. And if 19 of them tell you to do something, 
do that. When we hear the 19 out of 20 experts tell us to do something, the people actually know what they're talking about, and we do the opposite, the Bible has a word for that, and that is the word fool. All right, I'm done ranting. All right, so uh, we have lobotomized faith. That's one misunderstanding. The second is disembodied faith. The first is faith without reason. The second is faith without works. Um, this comes from the misnomer that faith is opposed to work. Um, none of the ancient uh, people that wrote or used Greek language, uh, the philosophers would have thought of pistis as passive. Like, just none of them would have. It's not a passive word. I think this misnomer comes from, if you know your scriptures, and it's okay if you don't know the scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Note Paul is not <laughs> contrasting faith and works as op oppositional forces. He's just saying we're not, we're not saved by our own works, we're saved by the work of Jesus. But he's not saying works are opposite of faith. That's not what he's saying. Paul's not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. Uh, we see this all over the Bible. I could go on and on on this topic. Let me give you some examples for some of you who are doubting, who aren't believing this. Uh, one is the verse that comes right after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and that's verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Galatians 5, 6, uh, Paul says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then go back to Romans 1, 5 that we already mentioned earlier, this provocative phrase, the obedience of faith. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote an entire letter. Check it out, read it. Here's a little sampling. He says this, uh, the letter's all about faith and works not being oppositional forces, but being one thing. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not, that is not accompanied by action is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham, here comes Abraham again, considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. There's so much there. A few a few observations. Uh, James tells us faith without use is is uh, without works is useless. This is a pun in the Greek language. He in the Greek language he's saying uh, faith without works doesn't work. Is kind of what he's saying. You would chuckle if you, if you read it there. He's like it just doesn't work. Uh, he also says when when Abraham he had this idea in his mind, but when he acted upon it and he obeyed God, it made his faith uh, complete or it brought it to maturity. And finally, the capstone statement is. Uh, you know, because just James getting frustrated with the church. He's like, faith without works is dead. If you come up on a scene of an accident and you see somebody lying there, you see a body lying there, the first thing you're going to do, even if you're not a doctor, is probably go and get close to them and, and listen for breath. You're going to look for signs of life, movement or grunts or noises or something. Um, James is like, like, faith that has no works is a dead corpse. There's no signs of life. If you want to know if someone has true faith or real faith, just look at how they live. It's that simple. We see this again and again and again. Richard Stearns was the president of World Vision. I love this quote. He says it, it's not what you believe that counts, but what you believe enough to do. Let me repeat that. 
This is really important. It's not what you believe that counts, but what you believe enough to do. Uh, Eric's faith, did he have faith? Yes, he climbed Mount Everest. So yes, he have a real faith works. It works. Uh, return to Hebrews 1.11. Now the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence in the Greek means to show something is true through action. It's in the very definition of the word faith. And the rest of Hebrews 11, read it this week. Just read it. Let it, let it kind of cascade over your hearts as it shapes your image of what faith is, what pistis is. He gives all these examples, but every time it's a bunch of people acting it out, living it out. It's always active. It's not passive. Noah built the ark. Daniel went into the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They did not bow the knee to the foreign God and they entered the fiery furnace again and again and again. Real faith works. A great story of this is uh, Charles Blondin. He was a Frenchman uh, in the 18th, early 18, uh, 19th century. And uh, he was, probably still is, uh, the greatest tightrope walker ever. And he, he, he tightrope walked across crazy stuff. My favorite story is across Niagara Falls, which Niagara Falls, this is staggering to me because I don't like heights. It's, it's 11,000 feet across. It's a quarter mile. And then it, it, uh, the drop off is 160 feet. And most of the time there's just swirling winds throughout there. So he, he was not only the first person to successfully tightrope across it, but he did it again and again and again and again over two years. People came from all over the world to see this guy do it. He did it uh, blindfolded. He did it with his, his, his ankles uh, tied together. He did it uh, walking on stilts. He did it uh, pushing uh, a wheelbarrow. He did one time where he brought a stove and a pan and some eggs and he made some eggs midway and then lowered the eggs down to people on a boat before. It's, it's incredible. He did it in the darkness. He did it backwards. It's just unbelievable. It's estimated that he did it 300 times in all of his life. His last time was in 1896 and that he walked 10,000 miles on that tightrope uh, and he never had life insurance as an aside, which is crazy. Uh, he, my favorite story about all this is he would, he would uh, typically, you know, There'd be a huge crowd to always watch him. He'd go to one end and uh, he'd be like, he'd get the crowd excited. He's out there over this. He's like, who believes I can carry someone across on my shoulders? And the crowd's like, we do. And they're going nuts. And he's like, who volunteers? And like, nothing. Did the crowd really believe? No. See, that's just theoretical. That's not, that's not real belief because real faith works. Real faith works. All right. So, so if, if you're looking in your life, you're like, I don't know, John, like I, my faith is reasonable, but I, I am kind of a little more of a couch potato Christian. I don't, it's not always what I believe is not always playing out. What can you do? I think just ask yourself the question and, and maybe you think your faith does work. And this can be a revealing question. Ask yourself the question, how does following Jesus change how I live? How does following the way of Jesus actually change my life? If you pulled out from your life uh, the pursuit of following Jesus, would your life change at all? It's a really, really important question, a hard question to answer. And it may be a hard question for you to answer. But if you see a lack of that, of like evidence that you're really following Jesus in your life, pick something. Just start. Pick something and begin to practice it. That's what apprentices and disciples do. Maybe it's uh, how Jesus talks about money and generosity, and, and you actually believe him, that when you give stuff away, your heart becomes bigger and larger and kinder, and try that. Maybe for like type A people like me, and I struggle with this, it's practicing Sabbath, just not doing anything for a while because God took a break. Like, let's actually try that. And do we believe God enough to take a day off? 
and to not enter into the activity. Um, maybe it's uh, trying to encourage people and build them up in a world that's tearing everybody down. Maybe it's trying to bring people together in a world that's trying to divide it. Let's try it. It's pretty clear what Jesus asked us to do. Is it evidenced in our lives? Are we actually living it out? Well, we may, if we're not, we may not really believe it. That's the truth. Uh, so uh, last, last misunderstanding, and this is, this is a shorter one, uh, but it's an important one. So we have, we, we have lobotomized faith, faith without reason. We have disembodied faith, faith without works. And the last misunderstanding is what I call disheartened faith. And this is faith without uh, courage. I love, my favorite definition of faith is uh, reason grown courageous. I love that definition, reason grown courageous. Because we can reason things out. It can be evidenced in our lives. Uh, but it always requires an amount of courage. Reason only takes us so far. Uh, the, the word courage, literally, the etymology of it literally means with heart. With heart. And uh, it's always going to require, like in the, in the example of Peter, uh, not just thinking we can get out of the boat, but actually getting out of the boat. Years ago, I went uh, skydiving and uh, someone, someone gifted it to me, which is kind of a horrible gift in a way, because I'm really frightened of heights. Uh, but I thought I should do it and challenge myself. And so we were doing tandem. We got up there. I'm with a, like a, a club, and they've all, they all do it for fun, which is just nuts. You know, they're doing it all the time. So we're, this, we're at like 18,000 feet. We're, we're getting ready to jump. The door comes open, and somebody in the front is like, it's so crazy. We're, we're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. And they all laugh. And I'm like, yes, you all crazy. Everybody's crazy in this plane, including myself. So I get up there with the tandem guy I'm attached to, and we're on the edge, and the wind's just blowing. It's like 18,000 feet of nothingness, and I'm literally freaking out. And I've reasoned it all through why it's safe and why it'll be okay and why it may even be fun. <laughs> and I'll never forget this. The guy leaned up in my ear. We sat there, I was sitting there for like a minute. He's like, you got to jump. You got to jump. Uh, that's the element of courage in our faith. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a brilliant uh, Christian writer and thinker, and uh, he coined this, this phrase, a leap of faith. Re if faith is reasonable, absolutely, but there'll come a point where we can't see beyond, and that had to be Eric's experience, right? He's blind, right? He'd reasoned all out, he practiced, but there's a point of actually doing it uh, that's frightening and requires courage. Courage isn't a lack of, of, of fear. Courage is acknowledging our fear and pushing through it. That's what courage is. There's a song, uh, Oceans, that we sometimes sing at New Hope. Um, this got a really, a line that's really uh, hung with me over the years and shaped me as a follower of Jesus. And the line is this. You sing it again and again, the song. Lead me where my trust is without borders. And I don't know about your life, but as I look back on my, my 50 years and a lot of my life following Jesus, um, Every time that I've trusted God to go beyond the borders and, and I'm, I'm into that land of the leap of faith where I, where I leap, almost every single time that's where I experience the presence and power of God in incredible ways. It, it's, it's really, really hard and super, super frightening at times, but it's always where abundant life waits. And so the, this faith, it's, it's going to require all of us as we follow Jesus to push beyond <laughs> reason at some point into a leap of faith uh, and, and to take a leap of faith. And, and I think we find we're leaping, leaping in the arms of God. So think of it this way. Let's sum it all up this way with this simple statement, real faith. What is faith? We started that way. What is faith? People are like, I got to have faith. What is faith? What is biblical faith? Real faith involves our head. 
It involves our hands, actions, and involves our heart. It involves all three. And so the challenge of today's message is, is look at your concept of faith. Faith is central to what we do as followers of Jesus. Where might you be deficient? Maybe your faith is really reasonable, but it's not evidenced in your life. Or maybe your, your faith is really evidenced in your life, but it's not built on reason. You never ask the hard questions. Um, maybe your faith is pretty safe. And when's the last time you really stepped out and took a leap of faith following God uh, beyond the borders of your trust? Do that work. Do that prayerful processing. And I think the Spirit of God will reveal to you uh, how we move towards uh, deepening and strengthening our faith. There's this great little story in Mark 9. Uh, Jesus is encountering this father and uh, his son is demon-possessed that had to be horrific to see and watch and to live with. And he knows who Jesus is and Jesus' power. And he comes up and he pleads with Jesus to, to cast the demon or, or the demons out. And Jesus is, is interacting with this man a little bit. And, uh, you know, he, he, he essentially is, is trying to gauge his belief and this man, we don't know much about him at all, but he has one of the greatest prayers that, that I think we should all be praying regularly. And he responds to Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I wanna challenge you to pray that prayer. Uh, Lord, we, we believe, uh, help our unbelief. But here's, here's the warning. And I say this out of love to you as your pastor. Don't pray that prayer if you wanna stay the same. I'm just telling you, like, it's a dangerous prayer. It's a powerful, and dangerous in the best possible way. If you want to stay the same exactly like you are, don't pray that prayer. But if you want to really follow Jesus and be a disciple and be an apprentice and become who God's created you to be and taste the life that is truly life, I challenge you to pray that prayer, to reflect on where your faith is deficient and invite the spirit of God into your life with that prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, we believe, help our unbelief. Teach us to have faith. Let me pray for us. God, uh, thanks so much uh, for, for this word uh, that's so central. We, we throw this word around all the time, having faith. I gotta have faith. We're people of faith, the faith. And yet I really believe that most of us have no idea what we're talking about. And I hope after today's message, we know a little more, or we're challenged a little more when, when the writers of scripture is inspired by your spirit, use this word, they use it very intentionally. And uh, to have faith, uh, real faith, biblical faith, involves our head, it's reasonable, it's built on knowledge, it's trustworthy and true in that way, it's logical, it works, uh, it's built, it, it's, it, it requires our hands, it involves our hands, it's gonna lead to action, it's gonna lead to actual life change, it's gonna lead to different ways of doing life and treating people and, and using our finances and using our time. And, and finally, it involves our heart, and uh, you come in and you, you call us again and again to step out of the boat and walk on water to you. And that looks different for all of us. Each of us are on different journeys. But uh, there's people here in my prayer today, God, that I'm certain have been playing this safe and are kind of on the edge of the boat and just haven't wanted to take that, that step. And uh, may they, God. I say that out of love because that's where the action starts. I'm convinced. And I pray we'd be a type of church. Uh, that we'd be a church of faith, people of faith, uh, faith that in involves our head and involves our hands and involves our heart uh, for, for your glory, for the sake of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.